Hello, this is Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and joining me from a secret underground bunker somewhere in the depths of the Cascade Mountains. My name's Ed. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. And on a slightly hilarious uh, tangent, I mentioned that now that we have property, uh, I could build a... Uh, large fallout shelter to store extra food and stuff. And uh, my wife began non-ironically looking up how much it costs to install a fallout shelter. <laughs> They're expensive. They are very expensive. Some They're... of them cost more than our house. Yeah, no, fallout shelters are expensive. Um, what you want to do is you want to get a vault tech subscription. Yeah, but then, I mean, you like you get the text message from Biden that says that nukes are flying. And then you've got like 30 minutes to get to uh vault tech, like at max. And we all know what traffic is like here. You're going to get stuck on 26 and then, you know, you're just never going to make it. Yes. Yeah, so and if you, gotta... even if you do make it, you're going to get experimented on anyway. I don't think dark Brandon would do that. Why would he experiment on us? <laughs> Dark Brandon, CEO of Vault Tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems about right. So, today's episode, we're going to be talking about what is basically my favorite D&D setting that is a single planet. Uh, because I like Spelljammer and I like Planescape, but neither of them are a single world. Those are both, like, multi-world settings. We're gonna I would talk also about... say uh, it's one of my favorites as well, and currently is the one that has the most competent setting released for 5e since Spelljammer broke my heart. Yeah, uh, we can talk about that a little later once we get into 5th edition settings, but the setting is Eberron. Woo! So Eberron is a fantastic setting. It's got some amazing stuff. I'm running two games there right now myself. And it's really good. It's competent. It's different. It's fancy. But before we really start gushing about Eberron, we have a segment on this podcast called The Weekend Hobby. I'll go first. Uh, only one of my D&D games... Well, I, I'll go first. The first Weekend Hobby thing that happened this week was that I got together with someone and we played a game of Infinity. Yay, Infinity! And also a game of Sniper Elite, the board game. Uh, Yay, the, Sniper Elite. The Infinity game was pretty good. I felt like we we moved on to the correct table size for the, the army size, and that felt really good. And it felt like we had enough terrain and everything so that the board felt right. Yeah, um, the board was a lot better this time around. Previously, it was basically if you pop your face out anywhere, it's gonna get it's going to get blown off. Yeah, there was enough terrain. We were actually doing a mission as written in the books. Um, I thought we did a mission last time because we had the two objectives, one on each half of the board, and we had to go push the button. Yeah, but those were just sort of general go push button things. Th uh, those weren't, like, drawn directly from the book with setup zones and everything. Got it. That was just put buttons on the board so that we have something to do other than kill each other. Uh, in this case, we were properly playing uh, Frontline where the goal is to get to the zone farthest away from you and hold that. And, yeah, 
Uh, I won pretty decisively. Yeah, uh, mostly due to hacking your biggest, most important snoppy model. I forgot about it. This, I mean, the second time was on me. The first time, I never would have guessed that you were going to drop that Wi-Fi router and just hack into my robot. But the second time, I completely forgot that that token was there and just walked right into it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing was I got really lucky with dropping the Wi-Fi router uh, because my hacker is terrible at his job. <laughs> and yet he did it first try. Um, I have seen plenty of games that where I've watched YouTube videos of people playing and it would take like five orders for a hacker to actually bypass your firewall and get the hell in. Uh, he did it first try, and then the robot was able to stomp around, kill your expensive hacker, scare off your robots, do a bunch of other stuff, and basically just force you to burn your whole next turn resetting and getting back into position. Uh, on, the, was... on the plus side, it at least took basically your entire turn and all of your orders to kill my hacker with my own robot. Yeah, I should have just held back where I started and blitzed you with machine gun fire. Probably. Um, that would have been a lot smarter than trying to get in close and try it, test out the flamethrower or any of that stuff. You had so much armor that machine gunning you from a distance would have been the right call. Because uh, that kind of would have forced you to either flee or return fire to try and prevent yourself from getting killed by just plinking away at the big robot. And that would have been better for me. Um, and then my sneaky piece went up the other side and just killed everything in your backline because you didn't have a guard there. Yeah, that tends to happen in basically every game. I don't really have anything that works well as a rear guard. I mean, um, you can always deploy some mines. Yeah, none of the guys that I had selected on this list had mines. Um, my medium infantry are in a weird spot because... They're very expensive, so you only get a few of them, and they're, I don't know, they do a lot of things, but you only get a couple of them, and maybe having one of them sneak around in the back line just to protect things would be good, but eh, it's, I don't know, my guys are very specialized in what they want to do, and I'm still learning how they all work because my killbots they really aren't good for much of anything other than cheerleading and potentially just bringing hurt if they're all looking at the same thing at once but when they get stuck out on their own they aren't good at anything yeah and i mean my hitting piece was a very good heavy machine gun guy with mimetism and camouflage and yeah he was just uh running around back there like a cyberpunk murder machine. So, um, I would also say that one of the mistakes or like potential mistakes is that you chose to go first, um, which kind of makes sense. You have that big stompy robot. You want to get out there and start murdering people, but the game scores at the end of the game with this particular mission. So going second is actually a huge advantage because you have the last turn of the game, effectively. And whoever goes second, whoever goes last is the one who can get into position to claim all the scoring zones. Didn't think about that. At the end of the game. Yeah. Uh, missions that score based off, you know, pushing buttons or controlling stuff at the end of a particular round 
have a more advantage to going first. Ones that score at the end of the game give you an advantage if you're going second. Yeah, it's um, it's a complicated game. It has a or, lot of depth, yeah, which I like. That's that's the word I was looking for. It's not it's not super complicated once you figure out like how the system is different from your garden variety war game, but there's just like a lot you can do and it takes a lot of practice. Yeah, there's a lot of options um, and counters for everything, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think I've played maybe five games at this point, so... That sounds about right. I'm I'm still within that lose your first hundred games uh, threshold, so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beyond that, I had an Eberron game, just one. The, The other one took a week off because scheduling and stuff. Um... The players continued their dungeon delving. They uh, found a door. They passed through a locked door. They entered into an area and, oh, mind flayers and intellect devourers. Lovely. They got whacked pretty good. Um, They managed to, the artificer in particular, managed to basically snap out of the being stunned by mind flayers' psychic blasts pretty quickly because... Artificers have high intelligence scores, and it's an intelligence save. And um, the cleric was not so lucky and got totally knocked out and then intellect drained by the devourer, although it was unable to remove his metal robot brain and replace it with fleshy intellect devourer brain and start walking around in his body because the intellect devourer was killed by the artificer. So good work, artificer. Um, and in that case, basically, they managed to defeat those Mind Flayers, although it was rough. They had to reset the Warforged and, like, give him eight hours to fully reboot and install all the Windows updates that were required. Um, they found the Forge that they were looking for. They fought the Mind Flayer Arcanist, who was there and was casting spells into them and messing stuff up. Uh, they fought some other stuff. They got a couple of cool magic weapons that are there that uh, were what they were looking for. And they've got a few more rooms to explore. A whole set of rooms. And then down, down into into the cavern below where there's something lurking in the lake. Don't disturb the water. That's all I can say. Yeah, don't disturb the water. And I've also been doing some painting, uh, making some new terrain to go for Infinity or sci-fi wargaming tables. Uh, I'm going to put some posts on Instagram and Twitter about that probably this next week once I finish it up. Ed, what have you done this week in hobby? Oh boy, it's been a crazy busy week, but somehow I powered through and also got gaming stuff done in addition to work. Uh, we also played Sniper Elite after our Infinity game. Uh, probably needs some, some more playthroughs because the first game is always kind of a wash, but I got the vibe that uh, it started off really slow because we didn't quite know how to search for the Sniper at first, and then basically as soon as it got interesting, the game ended because you found me. Um the two hit points or two like discoveries that you get as the sniper 
doesn't quite feel like enough, or maybe the sniper needs like some kind of saving throw, you know, at the last moment if they screw up and, you know, if you roll a six or something, you don't take the hit and you manage to escape to an adjacent square. Um, so yeah, it just kind of felt like, hey, the game is finally getting interesting. You know where I am. You're looking for me. And then, oops, uh, spotted game over. I think you need to prep slightly more before you hit your first objective. That Whether was true because uh, I destroyed the ammunition depot and everybody heard it. <laughs> yeah. Immediately knew where I was. Yeah, I think prepping a little more before hitting the objective, dropping a mine or two or like killing a guard somewhere so that they can't, uh, so that you have an escape route mm -hmm. um, before you hit your objective might help slightly more probably a good idea um, and just, then <clears throat> yeah let's see did a fair amount of priming to get stuff ready um got my night of the living dead stuff primed up which i'm gonna try and do a old-timey black and white kind of look on those um started working more on infinity now that i've kind of gotten over my show off arc i guess you'd call it um i'm more willing to just do speed paint type stuff with infinity and hopefully get that done in a more reasonable amount of time and the paint scheme that i'm going for i think i've kind of cracked the code of what i was trying to achieve so Hopefully that goes easier. Um, I also primed my space dwarves for Stargrave, and I'm trying space dwarves. A, I'm trying a new-ish uh, speed paint technique called Slap Chop, um, which I don't remember the name of the original guy who came up with that, but the place I learned it from was Ninjon on YouTube, and so it basically involves doing all of your tones, your shadows, and your highlights and underpainting, and then using contrast paint to fill in the color. And on his video, he's able to get a model done in like 15 to 20 minutes. And, you know, he's a much more skilled painter than I am. But hopefully if I can do things in a somewhat quick manner like that, it will be nice. It'll be a good use of the contrast paint since... Uh, they're, they're specialty paints. It's got its own dedicated technique. It's not quite like how they advertise it. Like, oh yeah, just put the paint on here and you're good to go. It's No, it takes more thought than that. Um, so hopefully those will get finished up. And I'm kind of on a speed painting bender right now since... Uh, uh, sorry, my train of thought just derailed there. Basically, I kind of had the realization that in the entire time that it took me to paint the three Sigmarites from Underworlds, I painted this entire Lannister army, which is now also finished because I finished up the last two characters. So I'm like, huh, I don't need to spend 50 hours working on one dude. I can spend, you know, a, a fraction of that time and still have it look quite good. So I'm looking for good ways to save time because the faster I get the better I get, the faster I get again. 
hopefully that leads to more painted stuff. Yeah, and more painted stuff is better. Yeah, and then I also I reprimed my uh, jets for missile threat because I had primed them with just my regular hobby paint and an airbrush, and for some reason it was just flaking off like crazy. All the edges paint was just coming right off, so I'm like, all right, bring out the big guns and threw a rattle can on it. We'll see how well that holds up. But I mean, they're jets. They just need to be painted gray. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I'd want to do some of that uh, blue-white, uh, like, digital camo that the Ukrainian ones get. Uh, you could also paint up the SU-27s in the, like, uh, what's the name of it? It was the Soviet equivalent of the Top Gun school. Uh, it was a base in what's now Kyrgyzstan or Turkmenistan, sort of in the southern region. Uh, they were allowed to have crazy paint jobs on their aircraft. They had, like, shark's mouths kind of stuff. Um, because Because they acted as op for a lot of the time. Um, yeah, the only the only real, like, Soviet and or Russian paint scheme that I was aware of for the Jets was some of the ones that have, like, the blue, gray, and white, which I think was the one you mentioned that the Ukrainians also do. But I'm always, I'm always a bit perplexed as to how that works as camouflage, because if you're coming down on top of that jet from on top, that blue is going to stand out against the green very much. I can understand having it on the underside, but from the top, it's like, uh, that's definitely a plane. Yeah, a lot of times the those were for, like, naval units, or ones mm -hmm. that were expected to be uh, in Navy. That makes more sense. Um, and then also... Uh, if you're not fighting at super low altitudes, uh, then you, like, may or may not be turning against the sky. At which point, um, yeah. At which point, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, Missile Threat, it's, it's a game that I like, but it's been a long time since I've played it, and the rules are somewhat in-depth, so I'll have to do some solo games on that before we actually attempt that one, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. Alright, so let's get into Eberron. Woo! Eberron is something of an outlier in Dungeons & Dragons settings because it came out of Wizards of the Coast in 2002 doing the fantasy setting search where essentially they asked people who played Dungeons and Dragons to pitch them a new setting. They were in the third, third 3.5 edition and they wanted to expand beyond the ones they currently had and they wanted something that, you know, had a new feel to it and wasn't just kind of a standard fantasy. And I mean, they already had Planescape. They already had some piratey settings that they had done before. They already had Spelljammer and they wanted something new, something fresh, something that kind of ex took the Dungeons and Dragons in a new direction. And they wanted to get people's ideas for it. Um, Eberron was put, 
put forward by a guy named Keith Baker. He's the designer of Note on this game. He's his blog still talks about it, including like what he would do in fifth edition stuff and expanding deeper lore. And I highly recommend it if you're interested in Eberron at all. Um, and you know, a bunch of people. There were like eleven thousand submissions, which got stripped down to about 120 and whittled down to 11 and then it, that got to just three and finally um one and finally everyone was chosen i feel like i want to see what the runner-ups were of the other submissions but i'm also i'd probably be like yeah those suck glad they didn't choose that one honestly the runner-ups the like top three seem like they were all from people who are, at this point, notable in the game industry. Uh, one of wow. the other ones was from Rich Burlew, who did the Order of the Stick webcomic. <laughs> okay, I um, play a game he did. Yeah, so, and he's written some other stuff for Wizards of the Coast as, since then. So, and then I don't recognize the name on the third person, but I'm sure they're involved, I think they're involved in... Uh, this sort of stuff as well. So this actually generated really interesting ideas and I think it was useful and I would love to see them do it again. But yeah, that would, that would be cool. I'm still yeah. kind of disappointed that I missed out on the uh, Osprey open call for uh, war games, but uh, it was I think, a time where I definitely didn't have the brain space to, to do that. I think they do that like once a year though, right? I don't know. I the when you when you showed it to me that was the first time I'd heard of it. But yeah, if they do it as a yearly thing, that I mean that's a a year to finally work on uh, uh, emu war. Yes, the emu war. So Eberron as a setting is interesting. It has some very deep like mytho historical lore. Some stuff with dragons. Some stuff with um, like the giants and blah, 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 blah. A lot of deep mythological background, which we're not going to touch on all that much because we haven't done that with any of the others. The interesting thing to note is that it borrows a lot from pulp adventure, film noir, steampunk, magitech kind of stuff, and is sort of set in what's effectively a post-war era. Uh... In the setting, the major continent has just come out of what's known as the Last War, and which lasted for almost 100 years, and was kind of World War One-y, um, in that it saw mass mobilization, magical weapons like cloud kill spells were used, uh, places got totally destroyed, there were a whole bunch of stuff, um, Advances in magical technology happened. Uh, the lightning rail is magical trains, and those were used during the war. And skyships were built and used towards the end of the war. And the warforged, which are human-sized constructs, were built as soldiers for the war. And so a lot of stuff has happened, and the big war just ended, but the world is kind of uh, cracked a little because of it. Uh, one of the things that ended the war was the total destruction of the country of Sire in an event known as the Day of Mourning, 
when the country just basically ceased to exist and was replaced by this dead mist of that killed people and magically warped the country and no one knows what caused it or who no one took responsibility for it it was sort of like a magical nuke getting dropped on a country except a magical nuke getting dropped on a country as a mystery so it has like a lot of deep mysteries like who did this why is this there what's going on with it and other things with the various other places in the setting uh it has several new races uh the first of course is the warforged which are constructs they're robot people uh they were built during the war um based off of ancient technology that was rediscovered and they have a few cool abilities primarily they give you a chance to be a robot and if you're not playing in eberron you can come up with your own like how this warforged got built was it someone trying to make a new golem did you stumble through a portal from the eberron universe were you rediscovered having been like buried for a thousand years and now activated and like wondering what happened to all the kingdoms you knew there's some really cool opportunities for doing stuff with warforged they're great i love warforged uh there's shifters which are sort of related to lycanthropes though they don't change fully into an animal form they just sort of shift so they might grow claws and get more hairy or get more muscular or you know their ears get bigger or something uh they're kind of a cool balance for it um in that if you don't want to play a full werewolf you can instead do a shifter which sort of gets more bestial at times uh without things like silver bullets or silver stakes killing you and losing control of yourself when the moon is full or anything uh, there's changelings, which, again, similar thing, where they are like uh, doppelgangers, where they can sort of change their face and change what they look like, um, but they're not 100% capable of just assuming a brand new identity instantly. Uh, they just sort of kind of look very generic, and then they can morph their face and their appearance. Uh, and there's the Kalashar, which are humans that have been linked to divide, linked to spirits from the dream world. And basically, they're just kind of psychic-y humans. Um, and that was the new... Those were the new races that the book introduced. And all of them are pretty cool. Uh, Kalashar are probably the weakest because just psychic-y humans, you can just play a normal human and take a class that does psychic stuff. Um, they're not particularly distinct. And they come from one of the other continents of Eberron, so they're not as involved in the main plot of the, of the world. Uh, the book also added the artificer class which is a staple of dungeons and dragons at this point it's shown up in editions since uh the artificer class is basically someone who makes magic items they're a wizard they're an intelligence caster they've always been an intelligence related caster 
But they, instead of just learning to cast spells, they focus on casting spells through the use of equipment. In 5th edition, this means either using wands or alchemy supplies or enchanting your armor or um, just building funky, cool equipment like a robot dog that attacks people. Uh, Artificers are a very interesting class description because they have a lot of opportunities for doing stuff and their abilities allow them to describe their spells in different ways and encourage you to describe your spells in different ways. One of the artificers in my campaign, when they cast the catapult spell, they describe it as them like pulling a little thing out of their bag and deploying it into a tiny little trebuchet that then magically flings stuff at the target. Um, rather than, you know, just casting a spell and hurling a rock. So, Eberron added some new races, added some new classes, but the races and the classes aren't the core part of the setting. The core part of the setting is the places in the setting. And the the book, the core component of the game is set on the continent of Korovar, and in the formerly the former empire or kingdom of Galifar, which at the start of the war broke into five distinct or yeah, five smaller groups, which basically it was a civil war over succession to the throne. Uh, the five major kingdoms were Arundar, Thrain, Karnath, Sire, and Breland. Uh, Sire got blown up at the end of the war. Breland is the most interesting-ish one. They're kind of mercantile. They're, they've got a lot of internal politics stuff going on. They missed most of the war because they're on the coast and nobody else is around them. They've got some natural defenses with mountains and stuff. Uh, and they also have the city of Sharn, which is worth talking about in greater detail because Sharn is a massive city of towers. It's a metropolis. It's got thousands and ten, hundreds of thousands of people living there. It's basically fantasy New York and allows you to do like a urban noir story. There's crime, there's spies, there's, you know, dark dungeons below the city. There's corrupt nobles at the top. There's a, a family of halfling crime bosses. Um, there's lightning rails and skyships and all sorts of stuff. It's a great place. And you can have any character, any race show up in Sharn and nobody's going to bat an eye. Uh, Karnath is a highly militaristic country and is known for its use of undead in warfare. They, yeah, they summoned undead soldiers uh, when they started losing too many troops in the war. So now they have legions of skeletons and zombies uh, at their command. Uh, it was like officially part of the state run thing was undead soldiers. So them having access to that and using it all the time, kind of, they're not evil mostly, uh, but they have this sort of necromancy feel to them, which, you know, gives you some new, uh, gives you some interesting thoughts. Uh, Thrain 
is kind of a theocracy. Uh, the country is home to the uh, Flame Keep, which is the head of the Silver Flame Church, which are Catholics. I mean, they have an Inquisition. They hunt down werewolves. Uh, they they have a pope, basically. They're they're vaguely Catholics. Uh, they're generally good aligned, but also there's some corruption in the church. So yeah, and I so they're said kind of space Catholics, but that's. Uh... Uh, Spelljammer. Yeah. Uh, they're kind of fun. Uh, Thrain has a lot of cool options because it's on the, you know, it's across a big river delta from Karnath, and obviously Undead slash Theocracy does not get along well. And they're also bordering the last one, Arndar, which has the, like, magical academy. Uh, lots of mages, lots of, like, knowledge of magic and just direct magic as opposed to artificers. This is where your wizards all like hang out for the most part. And they also had one of the clearest lines to the throne before the war. So they're kind of, they got a lot of nobles and a lot of mages and they're kind of old school about it. And then you have the countries around the like five kingdoms that were involved in the war which many of them were part of these kingdoms before the war, but broke away when they saw the chance. Uh, these include the Maror Holds, which is a dwarven, like, two, two parallel lines of mountains with a valley between them. Uh, they have some cool stuff where the dwarven kingdom is fairly young, but they've discovered the ruins of an ancient dwarven kingdom deep beneath the mountains, and they're trying to figure out what killed the ancient dwarves. Uh, you have the Lazar Principalities, which is a loose collection of islands and a sort of rugged coastline on the far edge of the continent that's run by pirates, for the most part. Uh, some of these pirates are fairly benevolent. They, you know, do run protection rackets, and some of them are... Like, the Blood Sails group of pirates are literally vampires. Um, hence the name. Uh, you have Cubara, which is an interesting thing, because it's a loose collection of lizard folk tribes and human settlers that kind of wanted to move into this jungle area because there's some good mining opportunities for a magical material. The lizard folk do not take this super well. Um... So they're kind of not actively at war right now. You have the Talenta Plains, which is halfling barbarians that ride dinosaurs. Yeah, They're nomads. They move around a lot. They're kind of, kind of Mongolian-ish, but also maybe a little Native American-ish. And they ride dinosaurs. So there is nothing wrong with the Talenta Plains. They're great. Um, I guess the only downside is there's not a lot of major locations there because nomads uh but you could do some cool stuff there i've had some encounters set there uh there's valinar which was founded by elven mercenaries and they are kind of a little i would say a little middle eastern slash mongolian sort of turkish uh like pre-ottoman empire turkish uh they come from the Kingdom of the Elves, which is, like, its own island. But they're mercenaries, mostly. 
and they took over this country. Uh, you also have Drask, which was founded by the Hobgoblins, who kind of got their shit together during the war. Uh, they were also kind of the successor to the ancient Hobgoblin Empire of Dakani that was on the continent 15,000 years ago and was destroyed by an extraplanar invasion. Destroyed, except for the ones who retreated to deep, hidden vaults and have now begun to come out and see what the world is like again. Uh, you have Drome, which is a kingdom of monsters ruled by the daughters of Sorakel, who are hags. Um, that one's a little scary because it's literally monster kingdom. You get harpies, you get goblins, you get minotaurs. One of the cities is run by a mind flayer. Like, it's all monsters all the time. There's not a lot of humans in the country at all. So if you want to be from a weird race, you just come, came from Drome. Uh, there's Zilargo, which is the country of gnomes. Pretty straightforward. Except for the fact that their internal politics are, like, driven entirely by multiple sequences of conspiracies and secret organizations and a group called The Trust which operate as a secret police slash political force slash, like, I don't know, adventurer patron, where they hire adventurers through cat's paws to go do different things. Um, there's the Shadow Marches, which is kind of a swampy backwater area with a bunch of orc tribes, mostly. Um, and some other shenanigans going on there. Uh, there's... There's not a whole lot of detail about the Shadow Marchers. There's some interesting stuff with Orc Warlords running that area. Uh, there's the Eldine Reaches, which is a big forest area that broke off from Aundar and is run by druids, mostly, uh, including a, an ancient awakened oak druid who, uh, yeah, big tree beard energy there. Uh, there's the, what do they call it? The Demon Wastes? Yeah, the Demon Wastes, which is a wasteland area on the edge of the continent beyond uh, mountains that is home to Rakshasas and a bunch of crazy tribes of like gnomes and humans and orcs, some of whom are cannibals, some of whom have dedicated their whole existence to, like, penning in the demons in these wastelands. Um, they see that as their tribe's, like, sacred duty for thousands of years, and some of them are, like, linked to the Silver Flame Church somehow. Um, they worship a very similar thing. Uh, and last but not least, of course, the Mornland. What used to be the Nation of Sire is now a blasted wasteland shrouded in gray mists inside of it there is well magical destruction there are living spells there are armies of ghosts that just sort of wander around not sure who they should be fighting there are war machines that will sometimes reactivate at random and just open fire on anything they see there are crazy abominations of magic and, of course, there's the Warforge known as the Lord of Blades. A mysterious figure of unknown origin who is gathering the Warforge to him to create a new country for them. And no flesh bags need apply.
resistance is futile. Yeah, and one of the things I really like about Eberron is that it doesn't offer a lot of hard answers. It offers a lot of potential answers, but it doesn't tell you as the Dungeon Master, this is what happened, or this is what the answer to this is, for the most part. Uh, what caused the Day of Mourning? Dungeon Master's choice. Here's like six theories. Who is the Lord of Blades? Dungeon Master's choice. Here's three or four potentials. He may have been the commander of a Syrian military unit. He may have been the bodyguard of the Prelish king. He may have been the last Warforge built before the Day of Mourning. Like, it could be any of these, or something else. Um, like, why are people doing these things? Who knows? What's required to unlock the ancient demons buried in the heart of the world? Oh, that's up to you. Um, beyond just the main continent, there's a few other areas. Arenal is the homeland of the elves. Uh, the elves have an interesting thing where they are ruled by the Undying Court, which are necromancy lich elves, except they're good-aligned necromancy lich elves. Um, there's some shenanigans with, like, how they're, how Eberron is linked to the plains, and these are essentially powered by ancestor worship rather than by evil necromantic rituals that suck the life force out of things. Uh, there's the continent of Zendrik, which is the former homeland of the giants who lost a war against the dragons and are now, you know, it, it sort of provides a South America, Central America-ish lost continent if you want to go do exploring. Uh, this is also where you might find Dark Elves, because the Dark Elves live here as, like, tribal societies. Uh, they do not worship Lolth. They do not generally take slaves. They're, they're you know, they're a little different. Um, you have the continent of Argosin, which is where the dragons all hang out. Uh, dragons in Eberron are different in that they are not held to the same, like, alignments as traditional D&D dragons. A green dragon can be lawful good. A white dragon can be true neutral. A silver dragon could be lawful evil. I want to see a chaotic evil gold dragon. Sure. Uh, dragons are not tied to the similar to the normal thing. Uh, Tiamat's not around here. Um, well, not in the same format. There is an entity known as the Daughter of Kyber, who may take a form similar to Tiamat. But she's a very detailed, like, deep lore thing, and I'm not going to really get into her. Um, and then the last, like, major continent that shows up is Sarlona, which is where the Kalashar from. It has some its own thing. Think of it like China. Or the, the Eastern-themed continent. It has an ancient human empire that's kind of run by beings from the realm of dreams who fled the realm of dreams and are ruling it as a kind of vaguely evilish empire. Uh, it also has ancient monasteries and a lot of other stuff. It's not a major component of the setting. It just kind of is out there in the distance in case you want to be from there. Um, the setting has a variety of deities 
one of the big changes from normal D&D settings is that the deities are a matter of faith rather than directly interacting with the people of the world. The deities don't... The deities may or may not exist in the form of a single entity that says, Hello, I am the god of forges. Um, that being said, if you worship them, you pray to them and they give you spells. Uh, if you call for divine intervention, an angel might show up and be like, My deity has sent me to help you. But you're not going to get the deity themselves on the phone. <laughs> So whether or not they exist is a matter for debate among clerics. Um, I I enjoy this a lot. I personally don't like having the gods directly intervening in the world. Um, it it just yeah, that's not the kind of high fantasy stuff that I want to play or I want to run. Um, Where is your god now? Don't the, know. The I, gods just... are. I just assume that the gods have bigger shit to deal with off in the godly realms, so, you know, the, the, the heroes probably aren't going to be at the forefront of whatever the deities are dealing with, for the most part. So, yeah. The uh, gods yeah. kind of being off doing their own thing is one of the elements of the game. At least Yeah, when Merkel I said you're on your own for this one, sorry. Yeah, uh... Tyr said that he couldn't be bothered, but he sent me. I'm an Archon. I'm gonna bless, 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 bless. Except for you, you're chaotic evil. Stop being a murder hobo. Later. Um, so Eberron has a lot of cool components, a lot of things that you can do that you can't do in other settings. Um, the lightning rail is great. I love magic trains. Magic train's great. Car magic tra train's good, magic carriage is bad. Um, it provides a way for you to travel between places swiftly and without having to do all the sort of same sort of random encounters that you get in every D&D game. Instead, you get to do other random encounters like bandits attacking a train or, um, you know, pickpockets in the dining car. There's all sorts of cool stuff you can do with that. And there's a, some great charts in the book, in the 5th edition book especially, for like in, random encounters on a train, random encounters in this city. Um, so speaking of the 5th edition book, the campaign setting originally came out in June 2004, uh, set up for Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. In 5th edition, they did like another dozen, almost 20 more books. Uh, getting into specific places. Uh, they talked about Sharn, they talked about the races, the main things, the magics uh, supplement, one about a uh, few of the other continents, uh, just about the dragons. Third edition had a lot of random books about a lot of random topics. They published so much stuff. Much of it was just filler. In 4th edition, Eberron had a couple of books, a uh, player's guide and a campaign guide, uh, published in 2009. And in 5th edition, there was a hardcover campaign book published in 2019. Uh, the 2019 book is one of the best campaign books that they've done for 5th edition 
just in general. It has a lot of detail on the various places in the setting. It introduces the races. It it adds the Artificer class back to Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, this was later reprinted in Tasha's, which hasn't happened with all of the like extra classes that were added, which I think tells you that the Artificer is nicely placed for D&D. It, it does something new and does it well. Um, it talks in great detail about some stuff. It also added the patron system where you can kind of have somebody who's in charge, who is your direct contact as an adventuring party. You might have like Steve, the King's advisor, who is the guy that you keep going to, to get jobs. Uh, this could also be like somebody who works for a newspaper or somebody who works for a thieves guild or somebody who works for a university and ever on. Um, and it goes into some detail about how you might do this. And this was another thing that got reprinted in Tasha's. So there's some cool concepts in the game that were good enough that they decided this should be a general thing and not just an Eberron specific thing. Um, the book is good. Uh, probably the weakest part is the adventure in the back, which is quite short and just kind of you run around Sharn for a little bit. There was a little bit of controversy when it first came out because the Warforged and the Artificers weren't as good in the new book as they had been in the Unearthed Arcana. And that was it. That was the only real controversy that I can find on the internet about 5th edition Eberron. Was people complaining that Artificers are weaker than they were in Unearthed Arcana. And that to me, is the single weakest complaint I've seen about just about anything. Weak. That that you think they're weaker... It's the kind of complaint you get from people who really care about optimizing their characters and being the strongest member of a party, and that is not the kind of person that I really care about their opinion. Power gaming. Uh, I've played several campaigns with Artificers, and as an Artificer... And I do not consider them weak. I consider them pretty high tier uh, in terms of classes. Just their general abilities, the variety of their subclasses, and their ability to contribute to a party make them really useful. Um, and yeah, that can be down to the build and the campaign and the way things were going, but I like them. I think they're strong. I think Warforged are good. I think Warforged could have been stronger or could have had more interesting things done with how they, like, interact with armor and stuff. But I don't mind the way they are right now. They still have a pretty solid ability to get... to be very hard to damage just because they are made of metal and wood. And the fact that they don't need to sleep and just kind of stand there on when, like, in power-down mode, is neat. Put your century into standby. Yeah. Um, and the fact they don't need to breathe or eat or whatever, also pretty cool. Makes them interesting and a little different. So, yeah, that's, that's the general gist of the Eberron setting. I guess I could mention some of the potential villains. You've got the Order of the Emerald Claw, who are... 
a former security organization in Karnath. They're tied to undead. They, uh, they're like your evil spy organization. They're the KGB to whatever your good guy hero spy organization is. They're going to be doing covert things and using undead pawns. And, you know, if there's a vampire, they may or may not work with the Order of the Emerald Claw. Uh, you've got the Lords of Dust, who are Rakshasas and demons and who are interested in bringing back ancient and, like, lost demons and unsealing them from where they were bound tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, you've got the, um, well, the Lord of Blades, if you want to have the Warforged be evil. You know, he's got artificers. He might send out an army to go conquer something or take something if he wants it. Um, you could run any of the kingdoms as being evil. Um, you could run all sorts of stuff in the continent of Zendrik if you wanted to have some sort of giant who is trying to destroy a city or something. Uh, there's an entire, or there's a, like, evil group of deities known as the Dark Six. Um, there's all sorts of cool villains mentioned. Uh, there's an evil crime organization. Well, there's two crime organizations. One is Halflings and one is, like, Goblin Hobgoblin-esque. So you can go either way with those. Uh, there's a group called the Aurum, which is sort of like business tycoons who uh, have a bunch of different projects that they're trying their hand at. And maybe some of them involve eldritch monstrosities from beyond time and space. Who knows? If you want to go Lovecraft with it, it's, op it's an option. Eberron is full of options and... The emphasis on sort of a pulp noir style gives you different campaigns than you would get in a classic high fantasy setting. And I think that's one of the reasons I enjoy it so much. Yeah, boy. Ed, your thoughts on Everon? Uh, I think you pretty much covered everything. My, uh, my thoughts don't differ much from yours. Great quality content. It's good. Eberron's good. And that's what we have to say about it. Play more games Ooh. set in Eberron. Yep. It's one of the most cohesive and strongest settings that I'm familiar with. And yeah, the lore is deep, but it's also not set up in such a way that it's hard to set something there. The way it might be in Faerun because you have novels going on and really strong characters that people are familiar with. Uh, there's no equivalent to Elminster or Dritz or whoever the other characters from the Forgotten Realms are that kind of mm, you, you players are like, oh, can we run into this person or whatever? There's nothing like that in Eberron, which I enjoy. So with Eberron talked about for almost an hour, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today I'm going to talk about Guillotine. Guillotine is a card game about uh, running the guillotine during the French Revolution. You essentially, it's for like 
two to six players, I want to say, might be two to four. Um, you lay out a line of nobles who are coming up to the guillotine, and each one is worth a certain number of points. Uh, each player has a little deck of cards that they can play to alter the line in some ways and cause other people to skip their turn or um, move people forward or backward in line or do various other things. You go around, uh, each person essentially takes some, but takes the person who is first in line, plays cards to adjust the line, and then the next person gets their turn and they do the same thing. Whoever gets the most points, the most value of nobles each day, um, wins. And you, you do several days of lines of nobles. Uh, I believe the game ends when, I want to say Marie Antoinette is gets her head cut off. She's like at, put at the bottom of the deck. Uh, and when her head is cut, the revolution ends. I would have guessed Robespierre. It might be Robespierre. I don't remember. I haven't played it in a while. It's a fun little game of kind of... It has a, some screw-the-leader elements because you can kind of see how many nobles each person has gotten and you can try and screw them over, but it's more just screw everybody over and try and capture the nobles yourself and off with their heads. Uh, it's a game of revolution where you win by getting ahead. Woo! I enjoy it. Um, I think it's pretty slick and pretty fast. It doesn't have a huge replay value because the like depth of mechanics is just playing cards that alter the, the line. Um, but it's still, you know, it's a cheapish card game. So it's worth checking out if you're interested in history and the French Revolution and cutting off the heads of the nobles. And that's Board Game Corner. Woo! Yeah, I, so, as I always, haven't played it yet, so I don't have much to say on that one. Yes. Off with their heads. So as always, this has been Knoll Country. Thank you for listening. Like, subscribe, rate us, send us messages. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Knoll Country and Instagram Knoll Country. Uh, on Reddit, we are, I think, Knoll Country for Old Men or Knoll Country Games, something like that. We don't, I don't post that much. Uh, do the things that Ed's about to tell you to do. Uh, you can follow me at Animadness on uh, Instagram. I'll probably have some beauty shots for Song of Ice and Fire or uh, whatever other model shenanigans I get up to. You can go ahead and donate some cash to True Colors United and your local reproductive justice funds. Uh, you can go ahead and support the Ukrainians and the Armenians with the Armenian Red Cross and the Ukrainian Red Cross. Uh, don't talk to the cops down with the monarchies uh yep that's all my propaganda yes and as always go Knowles. go Knowles.